Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges, and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, everybody. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you may be. Scott Luton, Greg White with you here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. Greg, big show today. You ready to go? Big. I'm not sure if I'm ready. I mean, this is a pretty high-powered guest we've got today, but I'm going to do my best to not look stupid. <laughs> that makes two of us, Greg. Uh, <laughs> but as you mentioned, excellent show today. Yep. We're going to be talking with an industry leader that's done big things in global supply chain as a practitioner, as an entrepreneur popular author, educator, and a whole lot more. So Greg, with no further ado, I'm going to welcome in our guest. You ready to go? Yeah, I think that's enough ado. Enough ado. Enough ado. So, hey, uh, our guest serves as the professor of engineering systems at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he also serves as a director of the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. Now, he's an expert in systems optimization, risk analysis, and supply chain management. Uh, which are the subjects he researches and teaches at MIT. Now, Greg, reading off our guests' industry accomplishments, awards, and recognitions, including significant work as a practitioner, we could fill up uh, lots of hours, fill up the whole episode here today. Uh, but amongst his extensive service to global supply chain, our guest is also the author of several popular books, including his latest, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the future of work. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Yossi Sheffi. Uh, Yossi, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. You bet. Thanks for carving some time out, Greg. We've been uh, looking forward to this conversation, right? Yeah, I actually did the research on this, so <laughs> I know, right? I, I told Dr. Sheffi that I started reading his book, didn't get all the way through it, but uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I think we're going to have some violent agreement. Today. Well, I look forward to that. I look forward to the violent and the nonviolent agreement regardless. <laughs> but, uh, hey, uh, Yossi, I want to start with your background here. So two points. The first one, as we learned in the pre-show, that work is your hobby. You love what you do. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, I have, uh, you know, I like what I'm doing. So it <laughs> means that I work all the time. I, not, uh, I love to take vacations. I don't take vacations. I don't. Uh, my hobby is is my work. I don't golf. I play, you know, sports that can be played in a short time. So I play a game of tennis and even pickleball lately. But uh, just honestly, just for the exercise. Mm. Uh, so I, I I enjoy it. I'm competitive and all this. But uh, by and large, I don't take uh, my trips are usually work trips, very short. So for example. At the end of next month, I'm going to China. It's two days of flying to China. Two days I'll be in China and one and a half day flying back. Wow. That, that, that's usually my my schedule because there's too much to do. Mm. So, um, and it's not as bad as it sounds because I can work on airplanes. So mm. it's uh, <laughs> it works. Too much to do, too little time. Greg, uh, sounds like we've got someone that, that uh, jumps out of bed uh, every morning with the sole focus of moving the industry forward, huh? I think if you and I are more honest with ourselves that we would probably have to confess that work is our hobby as well. So I can totally relate. I, I, I really enjoy it. I, I do play golf. You'll see. So I spend a little bit more time recreating, 
about four hours a month. Um, but but I, I really do. When you really enjoy what you're doing, you know, everybody says you'll never work a day in your life. And um, I, I think, you know, being able to contemplate this amazing thing, write a love letter to the supply chain, which is, uh, you know, a recent article that uh, Dr. Sheffy has done. So take a look at that. Um, I, I think if you really love your work, which you just professed your love. So, uh, yeah, you don't need other kinds of recreation except for, as you said, for the exercise, right? That's right. Well, so one other thing before we dive into your, your, uh, your, uh, life's love interest, Yossi, I want to talk about, you shared uh pre-show that you had the incredible honor of breaking bread and having dinner with one Mikhail Gorbachev about six years ago. Yeah. Uh, that should be a show in and of itself, but what's one thing that really sticks with you from that uh, conversation with that legendary figure? I'm saying six years, it could have been eight or ten, I don't remember. But it was in Barcelona. Uh, UPS had uh, events that they call, call it longitude, they invite high level people and a lot of uh, UPS and, and the customers. And I'm basically the, was the token academic in this. I had relationship with UPS for a long time. So uh, I was in a table with about five of us, the, the CEO of UPS and several others with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And he was, for me, you know, the hero of the last century, really. I mean, mm. the, the guy who glasnos and all of this uh, moved the Soviet Union uh, forward. So I asked him why he did it, why he changed the course of the awful regime of the of the communist party and, and open uh, open markets and did uh, improve the relationship with the, with the united states with europe with the west he did it because he liked the west he did it because he got red in the face and so angry with me and he said i did it because i'm a russian patriot i did it for russia not for you guys not for <laughs> I don't care about America. I don't care about it. But we were going on a downward spiral. And yeah, I well. recognize it. And I did it for us. You have to take it. He was really getting angry. He was all red. And then said, I, I didn't do it for you. I didn't for Europe. I did, I did it for us. Hmm. So just to me, this was kind of very cool. Because the guy is, is actual patriot. We think he did it because he's universalism. No. He was a total Russian, Russian patriot. Hmm. Interesting. I I love that. I love that mm -hmm. anecdote. And Greg, uh, as someone that has studied the country of Russia for quite some time, what what does that story signify to you? Yeah, I would have asked him a whole other question, which is why did you end my future career? Because I was a Soviet specialist in college and my job ah. was going to be to study and be a diplomat uh, in, in the Soviet Union. So, well, what had then been the Soviet Union. And the wall literally came down the year that I graduated um, with my undergrad degree. So I, my master's program was canceled. So I might have gotten angry right back at him, Yossi. But, <laughs> no, but truthfully, uh, everything you said, I know he doesn't care about. I mean, it was meaningful to us west of the wall, right? Yeah. And, and all over the world. And to hordes of, uh, of ethnic groups, com countries that had been, had been absorbed into the so Soviet Union and had been, their cultures had been largely suppressed, I won't say lost, because they managed to, un, you know, behind the scenes managed to continue to some extent. But it, it, 
regardless of the good he wanted to do for Russia, it did do a lot of good for a lot of, of other peoples around mm -hmm. the world. And it was the right thing for them. They were losing badly. They were oh. hemorrhaging funds. They couldn't keep up. I mean, President Reagan basically made it his job to bankrupt them, and he very and nearly he did. did. And right. he didn't. Yeah. Mm. Okay, so we're going to have to kick off a whole series right. on uh, <laughs> Russia geopolitical history. We'll, or have have, I don't know. we'll have to have Gorbachev here for that one. <laughs> Man, so. well, what an incredible anecdote, uh, Yossi. I'm so glad that you shared that uh, incredible. All right, so I want to shift gears here. We've got a lot of good stuff to get to. We've got to get to the, the heart of the matter. I want to start with some of some uh, aspects of your professional journey, Dr. Sheffy. And I want to start with, um, of all of your various ventures, you know, a lot of folks may not know, of the incredible work you've done as an entrepreneur uh, and, and an executive practitioner out there in the industry, Logicorp, PTCG, Logistics.com, eChemicals, Synchro, to name a few. Can you share one of those that perhaps had the biggest impact on your journey forward? I think it was, uh, I would have to say Logicorp, Logicorp, one of my first one, which basically was a third party logistics. It started when I was doing some consulting work in the very early 80s, right after deregulation of the transportation industry with Rockwell International and working with the director of logistics at, uh, at Rockwell. And Rockwell is a division of Rockwell that did the parts for trucking. Um, so they were going to do the annual contract or the biennial contract with a, with a trucking company. And we said, well, maybe, maybe we should do it differently. Maybe we should do an auction, a market test, see if we can get better prices. So, because now it was, you know, deregulated. Nobody did it before. So we, we took a, two small companies, the Rockwell volume of, of trucking and a, the volume of a, one of the largest companies in the, in the land. Um, a division of this of this company, and we did the market test, and the results came about forty percent lower with the same carrier that they used before. Wow! It was before this large company. So everybody implement this large company buried the results. They say we're not going to implement any of this. We're going to go with the old uh, old prices. And I said, what? I mean, we're saving them probably two, three hundred million dollars when two hundred million dollars used to be real money. So it's a. Uh, uh, so my friend explained to me that this company, the the culture in this company is such that if they will know that a supplier, we were Rockwell was a supplier to this company. If a supplier came up with this idea rather than the professionals themselves, they'll be fired. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, they buried it. So I said to myself, okay, if there are so many numbskulls in the business, it's an opportunity for a business. It's an, it's an opportunity. Uh, so actually we founded Logicop as part of Rockwell and the company started growing, but then there were some, the trucking companies were complaining that they, they thought it was not the case, but the, the, perce the perception was that we are biasing the result in favor of Rockwell customers. So say we must get out of Rockwell. So we got some venture capital. We got, we bought it from Rockwell basically and started independently. And this started growing like wheat. So in uh, three years, we went from $40 million a year to about five or $600 million a year. And this was before the internet. 
Wow. We had we were doing things by hand. Right, you <laughs> had to actually work for it. And the spreadsheet, it's a, it was ridiculous. We were growing so. At one point, we said for six months we are not going to take any new customers, and in six months we still doubled because just existing customer came. So this was. It taught me a lot it's because we were the ones who took the business, took the um, what companies were doing and bidding it to the marketplace and understanding what the trucker is doing, which trucker uh, to do it. And all. So I understood the transportation market extremely well. And in fact, I developed a course out, out of this at MIT. Uh, so this was, I learned from every one of, uh, of my venture and there were different areas. But this was something that um, was not directly out of my research. I didn't do research before on auctions or on, you know, uh, uh, the policies, of the government policies of, of deregulation or anything like this. We just took advantage of it. And uh, so to me, this was something that I, mm. I enjoyed a lot. Okay, Greg, I can't wait to hear your take. What an incredible story, the Logicorp story. Uh, your thoughts, Greg? Well, I think, you know, a lot of companies are born out of a dramatic change in the marketplace. FedEx, similarly, right, with deregulation around not just transportation, but well, a lot around transportation. But anyway, I think when you have the gifts and the skill to take advantage of something like that, that's when you have such a huge opportunity for disruption, right? And disruption is where you make the most money if you can actually do it. So, yeah, that, that's a great story. I think 40% is, that is a huge dramatic savings. It's funny because these days, Yossi, as I'm sure you know, a lot of times you're clawing for 5 or 10% somewhere, right? And Because everybody, everybody's doing it now. Everybody yeah. is, is, is doing market tests and auctioning. And as an aside, the end of the story that after six years after you know, after three years, we bought it from Rockwell, and three years later, we ran it by ourselves. And then, honestly, the wheels were coming off the wagon. We were we, we were growing too fast. We couldn't control it. There were no good controls. So we sold it to Ryder. Mm. And um, Ryder, it's now over $3 billion part of Ryder. Wow. wow. It's a, And the, the, the CEO of Ryder said, said to me uh, years later when I met him, he said, we did the 160 acquisition. This was by far our best acquisition. So everybody Man. enjoy. We we made of course money and and but they got platform to build on and they mm. did. Um Man, I'd love to make the rest of the episode just about that story. But for the for our <laughs> listeners, we got a lot to get to here today. I, I, I want to level set with this next question because I know f most of our a lot of our listeners at least have have has heard of the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics. You've been leading that as director since 1991, if I'm not mistaken. In a nutshell. Yossi, can you tell us what the organization does? The center is an interdepartmental unit. It reports to the School of Engineering, but it's an interdepartmental unit. We have uh, faculty and researchers from all over MIT. Basically, it does four stuff, four, four things. It does education. We run and give master degrees, and we have PhDs. Only graduate education, no undergraduate. At MIT, undergrad is done, only done by the traditional departments. We do, of course, research. So we do research in many, many areas, ranging from freight transportation to resilience to sustainability to humanitarian logistics. We have dozens of projects. We do um, industry engagement. 
So we have about 50 companies who are members of what we call the supply chain exchange. They pay some annual fee and they work with our students. They work with our research. They provide data for research. They get first dib at, at research result. They get first dib at hiring our students. Um, but, and we do a lot of activities with them. And the rule there is uh, when we have a, you know, round table or conference, the rule there is you cannot be quiet. You cannot just sit there and absorb, <laughs> you have to contribute. And we throw out some of the leading names in, in, in this business because uh, certain manufacturing companies, software companies were too, too quiet, too secretive. Mm -hmm. So we said, you cannot just sit there and listen to what everybody else is doing. You have right. to share. So uh, they don't. So this is the that is education, research, industry, um, interaction. And then we have the international dimension. I open centers in Colombia, Spain, Luxembourg, Malaysia, and China. And each one of these centers is a copy. It starts as a copy of us. We help them recruit faculty. It's a 10-year agreement with MIT. We, have, we help them recruit faculty. We, for the first few years, we are uh, actually watching the quality of the students. So we have a veto on who gets in and who not, even though it's not MIT, just through the, through the contract. Um, we usually partner with the local university, so they, they get the degree from a local university, not from MIT. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a master and PhD and research, very similar to what we do here. But the nature of the research, of course, become different after a while. So mm -hmm. because depending on the interest of the faculty there, depending on what the companies around are interested in, so it becomes uh, a little different. So we have these four parts. We have the research, education, industry interaction, and the international dimension. That's basically the four things that we do. Excellent. Excellent. I appreciate your mm -hmm. level setting there. I want, I want to ask both. I'm going to ask this to you and to Greg with this next one here. Now, we have a little standing rule that um, we don't go over 20 years of experience. We kind of stop there so we don't age ourselves, right? So that's an important little backdrop for this question I'm going to ask. So global supply chain in the 2020s, of course, is challenging. When has it not been, right? But, and Yossi, we'll start with you. Is it one of the most exciting times to be in this industry uh, in your career? Well, but of course, because, uh, you know, until January 2020, people used to ask my wife, what's your husband doing? She said, he's doing research in supply chain. They look at her like deer in the headlight. What is this? <laughs> I mean, in April of that year, she went to Whole Market, uh, Whole Food Market, and complained that uh, they didn't have some oranges and asked the 17-year-old cashier, what, what's going on with the oranges? And he said, ma'am, you don't know, we have supply chain management problems. <laughs> so it, it became part of the, you know, media, the society, everybody, everybody knows. In fact, uh, let me just digress for one minute. One of the reasons that I started the latest book originally was the people say, okay, the, the supply chain, we hear about it all the time. I, you're in supply chain, what is it? So the first part of the book really explain what supply chain is, how complex it is. And more than anything, I try to get people to understand that they shouldn't be pissed off. That's mm. a technical term, by the way. Uh, <laughs> they shouldn't be pissed off if something is not on the shelf at the supermarket or at Amazon warehouse. They should be amazed and thankful that something actually makes it. If they understand the journey, that every product takes in order to get to the supermarket shelf. 
they will be just amazed. How many people are involved? How many organizations are involved? How many tax regimes are involved? How many custom authorities? How many people are involved in, in doing this? Once they understand this, they should be amazed that the whole thing actually works. So I, that's, that's the first part of the book. For, following the pandemic, try to get people, because otherwise I would have had to explain to each one of my wife's friends, one-on-one, -on -one, what supply chain are about. Because they were de deluging her. So, well, so, and we're going to talk about the book uh, towards the, the latter part of today's episode. I, and I love that answer there because it is a, it's a modern day miracle in many ways. Uh, Rick, I'd love to get you to weigh in because I, uh, I, I, as I heard Yossi kind of share his example, I heard a lot of what you like to talk about on our shows together. So talk, Greg, in your, in your, in your view, being in global supply chain right now. Well, I think it's more, um, it's definitely more exciting than it has been in the past. Um, and it, and I would argue it's because of the, the awareness to me, you know, we we talk a lot about this, Scott, there are more and more, more and more global events and more and more disruptions in the supply chain. That's BS, technical term. Um, <laughs> the, the truth is all that's really changed is people give a damn about supply chain now and they know what the impact of it is. It's awareness because supply chains have run through wars. Supply chains were invented to support wars, frankly, but supply chains run have run through wars. Ships have been stuck in the Suez Canal before. We've never had anything nearly approaching the great toilet paper shortage of 2020. But that did initiate the awareness among, among the intelligentsia, the consumer, and even politicians. And if you can get their attention without paying them something, that's something. <laughs> uh, but, so what I, but the other thing that I think this awareness has ignited is supply chain has long been a laggard industry. And I'm sure Yossi, like me, you have struggled to try and, well, you just described it, to try and get companies to press forward even when it's in their own good in an or, you know in a measure of 3 or 400 million dollars worth of benefit and now you start to see people embracing new technologies and and you know encouraging and enabling their people to do better work and starting to recognize and seek the recognition within their own organization that enables them to improve this thing right mm. we call supply chain mm. yeah i i I, I couldn't agree more because it's now we see that the, you know, the White House, the, the Commerce Department, the, the, the State Department, they are all concerned with supply chains. What right. will happen? What will happen if China attack Taiwan? What will happen to the food out of your country? The geopolitics is now a large part of geopolitics is about supply chains. Right. It's, not, it's not so much about cyber attacks and wars. It's about disruption for, for supply chain. Furthermore, in every company's the supply chain chief supply chain officers are now part, you know, of the discussion right. in, the top, in, the, in the top table because CEOs and boards understand now the impact of this, which there was a dearth of understanding and awareness, as you say, are aware of, uh, of this before. And of course, the media follows, too. you know, the New York Times said that until the pandemic, they did not have anybody covering this bit, <laughs> logistics. And I know it, I know it for sure, because I, during the pandemic, you know, being the head of the center at MIT, I was getting calls twice a day. Got a call from a large organization, renamed, <laughs> nameless, media organization, and the reporter told me, 
tell me about supply chain. I said, what do you want to know? He said, I don't even know what to ask. Until two weeks ago, I was a sports writer. Now they told me to write about supply chain. So, but this was, this was the case. The Wall Street Journal had people covering, mm. but uh, this was really an outlier. Most mm. media organization did not have the context, did not understand what it's about. Examples are people talking about, you know, the Boston Globe had a huge article about the shortage of meat. The coming shortage of meat. The sky is falling. I called the reporter, whom I know who, who she is, and I said, what are you talking about? Do you even know that the U.S. is one of the largest exporters of meat in the world? That they have more meat than we know what to do with? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yes, some, something was close to the distribution for a week or two. You didn't have the cut that you that you liked. So what? Get rid. I mean, <laughs> but they have no... Since they didn't have any prior knowledge, they have no context. Yes. So, so we got all these scary headlines and many of them. All right. So I'm going to shift gears here and I'll gain uh, some of your insights on really specific aspects of global industry that I, I'm, I'm sure you are very passionate about because uh, this is your hobby. This is your passion in life. I want to start with uh, Yossi. Talk about how and why you think supply chains truly worked well during the pandemic. Mm. Okay. Uh, and there's nothing that drives me more nuts than people saying supply chain were broken or management didn't know what it's doing. Think about from one day to the next in uh, March 2020. All restaurants were closed. All universities were closed. All industrial parks were closed. This is half the food in the United States goes in bulk. And it goes on uh, in 50-pound 50, 50 sacks. It doesn't go in the small packages that have all the nutrition in them, which the supermarkets need. So the machinery to make it was not even there. People adjusted. Nobody went hungry. I mean, it was there. So people are, became, you know, as we know, people in the media, if it bleeds, it leads. So fear leads to more clicks. So people were having all these crazy headlines that were just not true. Mm. I gave you the example before about the, you know, uh, shortage of meat. There was shortage of eggs, shortage of this. Come on. There was one shortage that was real, and this is PPEs. And PPEs were absolutely the government fault, Mm. not supply chain. A lot of folks don't realize that uh, President Clinton read a book about pandemics and started a strategic pile of personal protective equipment and ventilators. Uh, President Bush built it even more. Of course, he had, you know, 911 and all uh, uh, all of this. So he he built uh, 9-11. He, he built it even higher. President Obama let it wither away. Mm. Use it sometimes and did not replenish. And President Bush probably didn't even know it's there. So it's a... Uh, we got into a point that was critical on these uh, PPEs, and it's it's a crime shame because PPEs are very very cheap, so inventory carrying costs are nothing. Mm. I mean that's uh, we should have had it, and I hope they are rebuilding it. I don't know what's mm. going on right now, but uh, I hope they're they rebuilding it. Missed a big opportunity, yes. Uh, Greg, your quick comment there. Yeah, I think um, I think supply chains performed incredibly well because of the seismic societal disruption of complete lockdown of virtually every country on the planet all at once. Right. I mean, it's not just it's not just the means of production or the method of production prior to the 
you know, all of the lockdowns due to the pandemic, which were necessary, admittedly. But but it was also the fact that we stopped the entire labor force of the entire planet all at once and then didn't immediately restart them. And when we did, it was sort of trickling back. And the truth is, for all of the automation and technology that exists in the world, virtually every industry depends significantly or in majority fashion on labor, right? Every company's uh, greatest expenditure, virtually every country's greatest expenditure is on labor, especially if they produce anything. So um, that's why we had so much of this disruption. And Scott, you, I know you recall that shortly after that, we not probably, we didn't get the highbrow publications like Yossi did, but we got a lot of phone calls as well. And I recall both of us sitting down, you know, as we were thinking about what to say to these reporters. And, and you know, what we realized was, for instance, the great toilet paper shortage of 2020, that wasn't a supply problem. That was a demand problem. People bought enough toilet paper for the next six months, right? And they, they drained the shelves or, you know, whatever period of time. I still hear stories about people who still have COVID <laughs> toilet paper. Let me tell you, do, do you know how it started? It started in Taiwan. When the uh, pandemic started reaching Taiwan, people thought that the same material that's used for the mask is also used for toilet paper. So they said people are going to build masks and not going to do toilet paper. So they started buying toilet paper like there's no tomorrow. The government went on TV and said, no, it's not the case. It's not the case. doesn't matter. And from there, it's like wildfire, the rest of the world. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, well, and it started here. In a lot of cases, it seems like at Costco because they have huge shopping carts and massive bags <laughs> of toilet paper. And you just always saw these pictures and videos of people stuffing their carts oh. full of three or four of those gigantic things of toilet paper. And, yeah, it, you know, it was a run. Like right. It was like a run on the bank. It was a run on the can. <laughs> and by right. the way, the media, of course, exasperated it. Yes, of course. Mm. The same well, and that's a great segue, uh, if I can, to this next topic. So we talk, we spent a lot of time talking about this um, and interviewing companies that are really are, are applying artificial intelligence in some really cool ways these days, right? Uh, you can't have a conversation these days without saying AI. So, and we and, and Yossi, I want to also pull out what you've been, you know, some of the things you said earlier, because you know, folks make a bunch of money hyping fear, right? So, along those lines. Uh, artificial intelligence, job killer, or job creator? Yossi. The answer is yes. I mean, it uh, it, it actually, uh, look, first of all, let me let me say the following. The, the whole extent of the impact of AI is not known yet, the, especially generative AI. AI. AI, you know, we've been dealing with AI. AI was embedded in many uh, products before. Nobody paid attention to it. Now with generative AI, it looks much smarter. It can, it's now threatening white collar jobs. Hmm. So people are starting to pay more attention and there's anxiety going on. Now, some people say that uh, there was a study by Oxford University about 10 years ago saying by, that by five years ago, 40, 37% of the job in the United States will disappear. Of course, that's ridiculous. We are now in 3.5% unemployment. Uh, there are more jobs than ever before. And some, so some people say, still say that it will kill all the jobs. Some people say it's a, it will bring to a new age of uh, you know, plenty and everybody will be happy. 
It's very hard. Look, it's it's uh, uh, Neil Bors, the, the famous physicist, said it's very hard to predict, especially the future. So, uh, <laughs> so it is, of course, we're trying, we're trying to say something about the future. So in the book, I said, look, every forecasting method that I know of looks at the past in order to predict the future. Mm. So I started looking at the various industrial evolution. And it's clear, so people before me, you know, said it, there are a lot more jobs created than disappear. So, and most of the jobs are not just disappearing, they change. They're just done differently. Mm. And sometimes it's hard to see the jobs that will be created because new industries may be created. Mm -hmm. So, give you one example. So, when Ford in, um, in the early uh, 20th century, move from making cars one at a time to making them on the production line, the number of employees of Ford went from about several thousand to 150,000 at the height of the Model T. So people think, my God, hey, employment really went up, even though the whole process was, was mechanized. But this is nothing compared to the real impact. The real impact was that cars became less expensive. People started buying cars. People started traveling. People developed highway, hotels, motels, restaurants a whole new industry developed with millions of jobs. Mm -hmm. So, but this was not what Henry Ford was trying to do. He was trying right. to make car more efficiently, that's all. But there was a side, you know, a related impact of this. This happens in many, many cases that you have impacts that people did not even realize that, that you know, that you can have them. So there will be, some jobs will disappear. We don't have any more elevator operators. We don't. We don't have any more uh, telephone exchange, you know, women who plug stuff. And there are jobs that disappear. Even though I should take, I should say, it takes a lot, much longer than people realize. It took nine decades, nine decades, ninety years from the time that AT and T invented the automatic telephone exchange until the jobs disappeared. Hmm. Uh, so it takes a long time. It doesn't happen overnight for many, many reasons. The, the Society and business processes are sticky. It's mm. not just happened because of union, because of regulation, because of uh, you know public acceptance. Uh, lots of uh, lots of reasons. When I say public acceptance, uh, here give you an example. Today's uh, today, you know, modern jetliner, seven seven eighty seven, eight three fifty, can go basically from gate to gate without a pilot. Not too many of your listeners will go in a metal tube that fly 35,000 feet over the Atlantic without a pilot in the front. Uh, it's just, uh, no. By the same token, not too many people will be too happy to see a huge truck going, with, uh, going behind them on the freeway at 180 miles an hour without a driver. Uh, it's, it's a, there's a whole question of societal acceptance for many of these technologies. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when cars came out in Chicago, when the first cars came out, there was a person with a flag going ahead of the car to warn people that <laughs> an automobile is coming. Are you uh, pulling our leg, Yossi? Are you pulling our leg with that? I'm not putting... That's it. still a law in Wichita, Kansas. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so I love... I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, anyway. So, I, I mean, it doesn't happen fast and jobs are going to change. The people are working with with technology, and that, as long as we are talking about it, let me finish. finish the there are two types of main new jobs. One of them is monitoring system, 
And the other one is when you're in the loop. So you, you go to a automobile, I went to a, you know, a Mercedes automobile plant and you see people working with um, iPad-like devices and running, running robot and the, or, or people who work in, uh, in Amazon warehouses. So they're in the flow of the work. So the, the, um, the robot brings the, the whole aisle to the, to the person, the person picks up, does something, it goes back, another one comes in. So they're mm. kind of in the flow of work, but they work with, with technology. Another type of job is monitoring and intervening when there's a problem. So, and we do it every time. We just don't think about it. It will be right. a lot more in the future. So when you talk to any customer service representative, you talk to a chatbot. So it starts by, so you say, you don't need to press any number, just talk. Tell me what the problem is. On the other side, there's an AI listening to you mm-hmm. and, and try to make sense of what you're saying and gives you, gives you a response. Yeah. But then the point may come in many cases to, to the... To an issue that the AI doesn't know how to deal with, or you get too frustrated and start saying "agent, agent, agent," <laughs> somebody will come on the line. But yes. this is exactly in a different division of work. The simple jobs are done by machines, and the more demanding job are done by humans. The job that are not standard, the job that requires some thinking, some understanding what uh, uh, what the issue. Is. So there are many, many ways of people to work. Uh, uh, to work with AI with, with technology in general. Yep. All right. A lot there. I love the examples of two in particular. Uh, Greg, I know you're chomping at the bit. What 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 was your favorite part of Yossi's response there? What's your take on uh, where we're going with AI or generative AI? And what's the uh, point that you hated? Uh, <laughs> I didn't. I actually didn't hate any points. But I, as you were talking about that, I was thinking, okay, this is another one of those examples of violent agreement, right? I think. My take is slightly different, but it's still to the same point, and that is it's time for us to stop apologizing for taking jobs away with technology because we're statistically at full employment. Companies can't hire people. Even before COVID, we had a 5% unemployment rate in supply chain just in the United States, and now there are more supply chain jobs than there have ever been in the history of time. So. One, I think we need to stop apologizing and trying and, and and you know for technology taking these jobs because no one else is taking them. The reason that we have automated robots in warehouses is because nobody wants those jobs. The reasons that we will ha- we will ultimately have at some point we will ha- have uh, fully automated over the road trucks is because nobody wants those jobs. Mm. And and um, and they're you know and they're manufacturing. We've talked talked about the problems with filling manufacturing jobs, right? The dark, dirty, dangerous, and dull jobs are going to get done by supply chain or sorry by robots. AI. That's not to say, by the way, if you've seen this really amazing commercial, I saw it on Bloomberg a lot while I was in Switzerland. Um, a guy is playing chess with a robot. Um, that is run by AI, and the robot is conversational like a human being. I think AI could replace a lot of roles, a lot more roles than we care to admit, frankly. But as Yossi, you have said so uh, eloquently, the world isn't ready for it. I know I'm not ready for it. The first time I saw that commercial, I didn't think it was nearly as cool as the fifth time I saw that. But, but you know, we have to acknowledge that there are jobs where humans are better and where data is better. I mean, forget AI. Let's just talk about data because AI sure. 
requires incredible amounts of data to make its decisions or to make recommendations or to take actions. Human beings can iterate instantaneously, right? We have critical thinking capability. We can, we're as often wrong as right, but we can at least not get stuck when a rapid, you know, life or death or high stakes situation needs to be made immediately with inadequate data. We can do that. So that's where we really excel. And that's where humans really add their value is when even AI gets stuck, right? Somebody with, with that kind of skill or knowledge or accumulation of, of data, um, you know, human data can, can still get the decision made. Mm. So, um, I, I mean, I think there are a lot of those dynamics and, I think I believe that the incoming generations they expect computers to do computer things and their definition of computer things or technology things is a lot different mm. than the people who have worked or do work at Ford today or mm. pick a company right um, we don't have to protect these jobs because as Yossi you said again very eloquently we will we will uh, elevate the jobs that humans do over time. And as AI gets more powerful, humans will be elevated to another thing that, that technology can't undertake. Mm. One of the things, one of the things that is most, uh, that, that understand the anxiety, because one of the things that is clear here is the following, as I said, in every industrial revolution, there are many, many jobs and many different jobs in different industries that were created. But the, as we talk in every time, we know the jobs that are going to be lost. You go to a supermarket and you see all the automated, uh, you know, checkout counters. You say, okay, they're going to have less less people working there, right? Uh, so some jobs will be lost. What we cannot see are the new industries that we created because they have mm -hmm. not been created yet. All the new jobs that will be involved because they have not been created yet. I mean, right. who was thinking about, the, you know, all the jobs about, the, you know, how to to uh, optimize ads in in Google? Mm. I mean, it's years ago. <laughs> the, 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 a lot of things just didn't exist. So, so mm -hmm. Yossi, let's keep going down that line of thought because one of the next questions I want to ask you is is uh, I'm not I can't remember who you quoted about how tough it is to predict and look at the future. I can't remember who you who you quoted there. Yes, but, there we go. Speaking of the future, though. And yes, we'll start with you here. What do you see as few uh, as as a few key critical future trends in world supply chains and even global economies? You're asking me, or you're asking Greg? I'm asking you, you uh, Doctor Sheffy. Ah, you, you get to go first. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, some of the uh, worries that are starting to be apparent are first of all the the geopolitical angle. It's not clear what's what's going to happen. It's not going to after last weekend. It's not going to happen and clear what will happen with Russia. Right. I mean, who would have who would have thought that Russia will get to the verge of disintegration? I mean, that's uh, China got close to it during uh, Tiananmen Square. Uh, we we tend to forget it, but uh, regimes like this tend to sometimes implode, as happened to the Soviet Union. So, but this will have tremendous impact. Uh, the issue of um, China, not uh, how do we stay in China and leave China at the same time. Mm. So uh, there are various uh, answers to this. First of all, companies cannot leave China completely. 
not the, they spend billions of dollars and decades about building a whole supply chain and tiers and tiers and tiers of their suppliers from the mine to the whole department manufacturer. They cannot just live there because there's no no other place on earth that can replace it at this point. So it takes time. Also, China is a huge market. So and becoming more and more nationalistic, which means you want to sell in China, you have to make in China. Mm-hmm. So people will have to stay to, uh, to stay in China. So what they're trying to do at the same time, they're trying to a pacify decision makers or a politician in the West by moving the last stage of provi- of uh, manufacturing the assembly or you know painting it, moving it to Vietnam. So now they can put a label made in Vietnam, even though most of the supply chain is still in China. <laughs> Uh, that's one thing they do. Uh, but some companies are, are, are more serious about it and started to regionalize to say we'll do we'll manufacture in China, you know, for China. We'll manufacture what elsewhere, what what goes on elsewhere. Of course, this creates inefficiencies because you lose scale in manufacturing, you lose uh, uh, some abilities. But companies are trading this off against the, the fear of another uh, geopolitical disruption. Another thing that, uh, again, I'm always raving against the media because the media is talking about the end of of just-in-time. Trying to explain that, or or, uh, end of China, end of just-in-time. Give me a break. I mean, it's a... And and, and you see this article in the New York Times, in other newspapers, about all the greedy, you know, manufacturers who do just-in-time in in order to save save the cost of inventory. Don't realizing that Saving cost is the result of just-in-time, not the reason for just-in-time. You do just-in-time, it actually brings both a low cost, but mostly higher quality. That was the reason for the Toyota manufacturing system. And the higher quality, of course, you have less rework, less, uh, uh, you know, um, calling back uh, vehicle to fuel. recall. Less recall, less, uh, you know, crappy cars that uh, <laughs> gives you bad, uh, bad reputation. So the cost is down. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the, the reduction cost is the result of just-in-time, not the reason for just-in-time. So just-in-time will continue, continue in various forms, uh, maybe more geographically concentrated, even though it will, it will take time. So these are some, I think, a lot of the things in the future are not going to be as different as we think they are right now, hmm. uh, especially not in the next three to five years. Long term, long term, there is, a, you know, a trend. Even though nobody knows what happened in the long term, but there is a trend, possibly to get more out of China because it takes years and years and years. So maybe in the long term, but uh, it also depends. If the EU, if the if Europe and the United States will integrate more and create one bigger market, uh, it depends on a lot of other um, things that happen in the background. Yeah, so. thank you, Yossi. I really appreciate that. Greg, get your way in on, on what we heard there from Dr. Sheffy. Well, um, I was struck. I, I, I've been struck through this whole discussion. Sorry, this isn't on the topic of the question. But I deal with academics all the time in, uh, you know, in regard to supply chain. And Yossi, the level of cognizance that you have of what's going on today and the way things need to change in terms of, of how to manage or think about or 
adopt and adapt in supply chain um, is exceptional. Oh, thank you. You know, I, I work with a number of schools and I've worked with a couple where they've said, we're always going to be 10, 20 years behind because of the rigorous publishing, yada, 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 educational rigor that has to go through for things like publications. Um, and I think they've accepted that, much like some of those corporations you've mentioned but not named, and we won't, <laughs> that have accepted that supply chain is a cost-saving exercise rather than a risk-balancing exercise. And I think it's important to recognize that it is really a risk-balancing exercise with cost just being one of those of those things. But anyway, I think it's it's important to recognize how exceptional it is to have this much awareness um, and focus on where things are in the supply chain and where they need to go and um, and aware of those foundational things that need to change mm. to get us there. Because we are where we are because we've pretty much always done what we've always done, right? I mean, we still use forecasting techniques from the late 1890s and early 1900s. And then we use AI to pick which one of these post-casting, that's what I like to call it, Yossi, post-casting techniques will make the, make the history look much as much like the future as we can. And to your point, it's really hard to predict, especially the future. Um, so <laughs> I, there, and there are lots of those examples where we do things kind of the old fashioned way because we've had to, but we live in a world now where there is virtually unlimited data available and technologies that can process this data to have us think about and solve problems in a new way. And to have that recognition is, I don't know, it's just, it just struck me. But we can, we, we can do it, absolutely. But as long as we also recognize the limitation of the technology. For example, if we do forecasting with machine learning, which most people apply machine learning to forecasting, it is still based on the past. The data is based on the past. If there's some fundamental change like COVID or Russia against in, in, into Ukraine right. and, and patterns change, then it doesn't work. Yeah. So and right. that's where you have people. You have to pick people who have the context and be able to recognize that it doesn't work and start working, started actually uh, taking it off and doing the work themselves. Mm. Yep. All right. As much as I hate, for the sake of time, I got to move us forward. And before we start, before we talk about your book and make sure folks know how to connect with the UOC, I want to ask you this question. Uh, there was so much I wanted to dive, but Greg and I both want to dive in with you here today. It's uh, too much to talk about, too little time. But what is one topic, Yossi, challenge our audience with this question. What's one topic today that global supply chain leaders aren't giving enough attention to? Mm -hmm. Oh, let me count the ways. No, <laughs> no, it, it's 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 not fair, because this question would have been much more relevant in 2019. Today, supply chain is much more in the you know something that people talk about, something that companies are worried about. So it is something that is uh, that companies are paying a lot more attention to, and not too many things are not not even not even discuss. The one challenge that I see in business that I'm not sure how to solve, is nothing to do with technology, is the politicization of everything. So if you are now running a company and uh, you know there's a group of young Gen Zs who come to you and want you to take a stand on you name it, you know, immigration, healthcare, you know, transgender, what have you, 
and you, you know that whatever stand you take, you'll alienate half the population. So <laughs> you know it. It's not like uh, we are in one mind about everything. So it, it's, to me, it's a problem. And we saw all these cases, of course, whether it's a, a Target or Bud Light or all these cases. Uh, companies thought they're doing the right thing and had, you know, problems. I don't know how to solve it. That's, uh, that's something that I see people are grappling with, thinking about it, but because we used to have a situation when the golden rule was for companies was don't get involved in politics. Now, because of very active workforce, it gets harder. Mm. So, um, yes, that's that is a a, a trillion dollar uh, challenge boy, that you don't call out there because there's there, there's no the, the the path forward is so ambiguous. But where I and Greg, I love love to get your your thoughts here as we. Um, start to wind down, but, you know, doing the right thing, which you mentioned, Yossi, um, being kind. And I hate to, I hate to sound Pollyannish, but in the most challenging complex situations we find ourselves in, I think there's some, there is, are some easy and just, um, timeless truths and values that you can revert to and lean on to help you, you know, guide your organization and your team through. Yossi, you're going to add something? Let me tell you something. Okay. I live in one of the most progressive states in the union, in a university which is even uber-progressive. Of course, all <laughs> universities are uber-progressive. And I wrote an article both in the faculty newsletter and at the Boston Globe, or the, open the Boston Globe, saying, we are part of the problem, not of the solution. Mm. Because we think that everybody who doesn't agree with us is an idiot, uneducated, and a moron. And the thing is, and they, the, my goalie gave me the, oh, January 6th. I said, okay, January 6th involved a few hundred people. 74 million people voted for Trump. So what mm. are you talking about? There are mm. millions of people. And I said, if we were talking to them, but not about politics, talk to them about families, talk to them about hobbies, talk to them. We find out that we agree on 90% of things in the world. We agree mm -hmm. on the shared humanities. We agree that you love our children. We agree on, and, and we don't. We put everything in politics. You belong to this tribe. I belong to that tribe. So I, so actually, we, we come to the point today that people just afraid of each other and hate each yeah. other. And, you know, people, uh, Democrats, many. Well, it's not many. I should say we, we all hear from the extremes. Think that if Republican will win, it's the end of democracy, the end of the world, the end of the United States. By the way, Republican think exactly the same thing about right. Democrats. Right. So that's that's the things I'm saying. We are all Americans. We all have to, you know, there's so much in common between people, between races, between religions. And we kind of, we cannot focus on this. We focus on what separates us rather yes. than what unites us. And that's, Yossi, that's my I, message for the day. <laughs> I love it. Blessed be the ties that bind. Greg, jump in. What, what, your, your thought here around these, uh, these issues and practices and, and the fear mongering that separates us all. Well, you know, information is unlimited, as we were talking about before, and so much of it is is also uneducated or unknowledgeable. It's mostly based on opinion, and and um, it's easy for fringe opinions to even stupid ones, smart or stupid ones, but it seems like stupid ones in great measure, 
to be heard very easily. And it's to the point that Yossi was talking about before, it's because it creates clicks. Conflict yes. creates clicks. And traditional media is dying. It is unquestionable that traditional media is dying. Yes. When you look at the Nielsen numbers on, on network news or even cable news, they are all dying. And to, to prolong their lives, they have to sell advertising. And to, have to, and to sell advertising, they have to get their numbers up. And to get their numbers up, they have to foment conflict mm. in order to get people to watch. Mm -hmm. So um, it's largely a function of, of today's media. I, 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 think, um, I think we, not companies, but I think we as the consumer need to look at companies the way the way companies um, really are, and that is that their constituency is not first and foremost, regardless of what they say, it is not their consumer, it is their shareholder. And they will, and frankly should, do what's best for their shareholder. And very often, very often, that is to the pleasure of 100% or a big portion of at least their target customer base, if not the entire population. Sure. And if we allow companies which are not human, they are full of humans, but they are not human. The reason that corporations is ex corporations exist is specifically to shield humans from companies and companies from humans. Mm. Right. So um, and in, in Europe and, and, you know, the way that they refer to a company is not in the singular, but in the plural of it. Um, but if you think of a company as its own entity, it has no politics. It has no position, right? It has no stance. Its stance is solely to do what is in the best interest of its shareholders, which by, by succeeding and surviving is also in the best interest of its consumers. Now there are extremes, the robber baron days, and, and you know, even good was done by the Carnegie's and by the Rockefellers and others who were robber barons and you know, the Rothschilds Shields and others in Europe. <laughs> But even good has been done by them. And, um, and I think we have to recognize that companies ha can have a sense of awareness, but that sense of awareness always, always pivots around economics, mm -hmm. what is best for the economics of the company. And I think just the awareness that doing bad things, dumping stuff in rivers now can be seen because of social media prevents them from doing things, right? It's, it's a very, it's, um, enlightened self-interest, I think, is the best that we can hope for from corporations. And when we take a more realistic stance like that, we'll be a lot more satisfied and we won't have this situation. The other thing is get the hell off social media, <laughs> so, right? I mean, 99% of it is just garbage, uh, garbage. So, so when, when you get out there and you meet with people, which I did for an entire month in Europe, right? When you get out there and you meet with people, you have, as, as so many people say, but Yossi, you should, said just now, you have so much more in common of course. than you have indifference with yeah. them. Look, I, I go to China a lot, and the United States, look, China is all, you know, monsters. Right. We have so many friends in China. We know their families. I know their kids. I know mm. we're good friends. We talk all the time. Yep. And, and I, it's, it's, you know, so what if they're Chinese? I appreciate this last uh, segment of our conversation. <laughs> I appreciate all this, this conversation because we're approaching this so holistically, right? Uh, not just all about supply chain management, but, but these last few issues 
big issues, these big chasms between uh, societies and countries and factions. I mean, these are the issues of our time because it's to, to what y'all both are saying, it's not getting better. And one of the biggest reasons it's not getting better is because people making money, creating more bigger chasms and bigger divides. But we'll save the rest of that for another time. I want to uh, briefly talk about, uh, Yossi, uh, this popular book, your latest book uh, that you've released, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. Uh, of course, we're not going to be able to do it justice in a little bit of time we've got left here today. But what is one key takeaway that you hope your readers will learn from it? First of all, uh, depending on which part, so some readers will just learn about what supply chain is. Uh, but uh, from the second part of the book, mostly that people should, first of all, chill, should not, should not be anxious. It's, th- nothing happens overnight. All of these processes takes time, and there's time to adjust. And adjust mm-hmm. they should. I'm talking to co- large corporations actually start to invest in people. Not starting, many of them have been uh, investing for a long time. Whether it's a formal education, whether it's a training, uh, getting them to upgrade their, their capability. But there's a whole set of um, gig workers and people who work in bodegas and small nano stores, nano uh, businesses that don't have the capacity to upgrade themselves. But the, today, one of the things that I'm saying in the book is there is no, this is not an excuse because there's so much available online, basically free that one can learn. One has to have the desire to learn and upgrade themselves just to make sure they're not left behind. Mm-hmm. I'm talking in my interviews, actually, to people in your profession, in many TV stations, people say, oh, my God, I'm a some, some, a reporter, a woman reporter told me, you know, you see, I'm on a ledge. I'm standing on the ledge. I'm, I'm so petrified. I'm, I'm, maybe I'll jump. Mm-hmm. Don't jump. Said, so, so what am I going to do? I said, okay. He said, I, she said, I'm not going to be a computer scientist. I don't understand computer. I don't know how to do computer. I can stand in front of the camera and be very good. I said, okay. But no, what now you have to do is to learn adjacent areas. It's not enough to do it. What you have to learn is how to do the, you know, uh, project management and how to do the, uh, uh, you know, producing. You're, you're living in an environment that you can learn in the environment. And by the way, using whether it's ChatGPT or other tools, you don't have to be a computer scientist. Right. You know, to drive a car, you don't have to be a mechanic. You don't have to understand how the car works. You have to understand how to run it. The, the tools are becoming easy to use, and you should start using them more and more and get comfortable with them. Mm. So upgrade yourself. That's I love the that. Of the day. Mm-hmm. So two, two thoughts, Greg. Get your, I'm going to get your quick comment, but you got to learn and upgrade yourself as a piece of advice that Yossi is sharing. And then secondly, chill to the next episode is what you heard Yossi say right there. Everyone, we can all take that to heart. Greg, your quick comment on uh, those key lessons from the Magic Conveyor Belt. Yeah, I think the most encouraging is that change doesn't occur overnight. And, and it is gradual, and it isn't inevitable, right? You can inf- impact the future. It, just because, again, somebody said it on Twitter does not make it true, and it also doesn't, especially doesn't make it true tomorrow, right? right? All of these things that we've talked about, the good, the bad, and the ugly, they'll all occur over time, and, and, and it might be 90 years, Right. Or it might be nine years, but it it will be enough time to adapt. And 
the world has survived, humans have survived, technology has evolved for centuries, eons, literally eons. And, and some of those changes, I mean, think about the Renaissance coming after the Dark Ages, right? Um, and, and some of those changes have been equally as impactful as we're experiencing today. Mm. Um, you know, I think about John Henry, the great myth of John Henry and the steam engine, mm. right? Um, and everyone thought they were going to lose their jobs and all of that sort of thing. But that was, uh, but you know, there, there is time to adapt. Mm. There is. And, and um, none of this is catastrophic. Mm. Believe me, if it's catastrophic, you'll be dead before you know it's <laughs> catastrophic. Well, well said, Greg. Uh, and Yossi, I really appreciate those key takeaways from your book. So folks, go out and check out. The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. And uh, Dr. Sheffy, where can folks find that book? Glad you ask. I thought you'll never ask this. <laughs> Available on, online in Amazon. You can have either the ebook, the, the, the soft cover, the hard cover. You can also get it on Google and Apple and everywhere. Not, it's usually not in bookstores because we don't sell it through uh, uh, to distributors. But it's, Oh, okay. Are there still books? Go to Amazon. Yeah, Amazon. All right. Yeah. Well, congrats on this latest project. Uh, I know that it's it's one of many initiatives you're leading or you're a part of, but congrats on this latest book, The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. And and also, Dr. Sheffy, how can folks connect with you if they want to invite you in, you know, compare notes with you, have your keynotes at an organization, whatever it is, be a part of uh, uh, your organization? Sure. Or some of those industry supporters. How can folks connect with you? The best way is to get me on email. It's my last name, Sheffi, S-H-E-F-F-I, at MIT.edu. Sheffi at MIT.edu. That's the easiest way of, of getting in touch with me. Wonderful. It's just that easy. Greg, I really have enjoyed this wide-ranging, uh, genuine, frank conversation with Dr. Sheffi here today. Before we sign off, your what was one of your favorite things, and I've got my 17 pages of notes here, but what's one of right. your favorite things that Yossi dropped on us here today? I think it is just that um, there's time to adapt and you should expect to adapt. But um, in truth, you know, we're going through an incredible generational shift right now. Those people who are in largely a tribal knowledge um, type of business using their hands for, for, physical labor that shift is is changing for the new generation gen x y and z to who much prefer to have at least technology as an augmentation of their job and were brought up expecting technology to do technology things and and having a continually evolving understanding of what that is i think that times are set up right for a generation in this case or a couple of generations to adapt uh, in, uh, uh, and, and really be uh, encouraging of all of this technological change because they were born to accept it. Mm. Well said there, Greg. Uh, well, big thanks. Big thanks to uh, Dr. Yossi Sheffi, director of the MIT Center for Transportation Logistics, also author of The Magic Conveyor Belt, Supply Chains, AI, and the Future of Work. Uh, Yossi, thanks so much for spending some time with us yeah. here today. Thank yeah, you for having me. I enjoyed it. 
I did as well. We're going to have you back. Uh, there's, we had so much more to get to, uh, but thanks so much for spending some time here with us. And uh, Greg, always a pleasure. Man, what a great conversation. We knew it was going to be. Folks, we told you it was going to be a big conversation with a big guest. Uh, but yeah. Greg, I think it surpassed uh, the high bar we set, didn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I went totally different directions, and I'm glad <laughs> so. I mean, fun. I love it. I do too. I do too. Supply chain is not boring. That's right. Regardless of what you've heard. And now you've experienced it firsthand. <laughs> that is so true. But hey, folks, uh, hopefully you've enjoyed this episode as much as Greg and I have. I tell you, Dr. Sheffy, uh, he's a great follow across social. Make sure you go check out his book. And hey, check out what they're doing. They're doing some really cool things at the MIT Center for Transportation and Logistics. But hey, whatever you do, take something that Yossi or Greg or, or some of the conversation delivered here today and put it into action. Right. Small, small little nudges is how we move mountains across industry. So it's all about action. Deeds, not words. With that said, on behalf of our entire team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton challenging you to do good, to give forward and to be the change. Hey, be like Dr. Sheffy. It will be a better place. And we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at SupplyChainNow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now. Supply Chain Now.